you know, one of the, um, one of the kind of spiritual disciplines or practices that, that I've put into my life for several years now is the, the practice of, of prayer journaling. It's kind of just a real simple idea. You, you get a journal and, you know, I, I take time to, to write down either the things that I'm praying for, the places where I've seen God work in my life, the places where I've seen God work in others' lives. Also, try to take note of what God has been saying to me in the Word. And, and then I'll hold on to those journals. When I, when I fill one up or when I've been writing in one for a long time and I sense it's time to move to a new journal, I'll save it and I'll kind of mark the date on it and I kind of keep it. And every now and then I go back and like I'll pull out a journal from a couple years ago and I'll read through it just to kind of see, man, what was God doing in my life even a couple years ago? And often it stirs my heart's affection for him to see his faithfulness. Well, the other day I pulled out one such old journal and it was from, uh, you know, it's, it was, I started it in February of 2020. And so it kind of chronicled my journey through the year that was 2020. And I, I found myself, I found this page, it was in April of last year where I was writing and I was just expressing like, I was like angry. I was just kind of mad and frustrated and I was writing about that and kind of pouring that out to God and expressing that to him. And then I, I took note that I had shared that, that feeling of anger and frustration uh, with a friend of mine. And remember, this, is, this was like a month after the pandemic had just hit us hard. Everything had been shut down. And I shared it with a friend and he said, hey, have you thought about the, the fact that maybe you're grieving? You know, gr grief has several cycles. The first one's denial, you know, but the second one's anger. And if you're on that like borderline between denial and anger and somebody tells you you're grieving, you're like, I don't want to hear that I'm grieving. Like, you're just mad. You're like, I want to be mad. I want to be justified in my anger. And I remember my friend told me, he said, maybe you're grieving. I remember being like, I'm not grieving. I'm just angry because everything's messed up. And then it finally hit me that actually, oh, maybe I am grieving. And I started to write about it in my journal. I said, I need to take a time to take a page just to write like, what is it that I'm grieving? You grieve when you lose something. I was like, what is it that I've lost? And I just started reading through my journal the other day, and it was like I had two pages of things that I realized that had felt like they'd been pulled out from under me. You know, my, my, my normal weekly rhythm, as simple as that sounds, the predictability of knowing kind of what my week is going to look like was completely pulled away from me. You know, the, the freedom to gather together like this on Sunday mornings felt like it was pulled away from me, and we, we were all in different places having to connect online, you know. My, my normal communal rhythms, and this was the one that I think hit me the hardest. I realized, man, the normal places where I connect with those who are closest to me had been stripped away, and they were reduced to a phone call or a Zoom call, and that was the only connection I had. You know, I think in the reality is we all look at 2020. There are things that all of us lost. There are a lot of things that we lost. You know, I think maybe the most devastating loss that all of us felt that touched every single human being was the loss of community. All of us, at some point, found ourselves at a place last year where, man, we just felt like we needed people. I need to be around someone who knows me, loves me, will listen to me, will hug me. I need to be around that. We miss it. It didn't matter if you were the most extroverted person in the world or the most introverted person. All of us came to a place where we felt that need to be around our community. You know, I think this actually speaks to some of the angst that we feel in, in, in our city, in our culture, in our country right now as we're going, oh man, I don't want that again. I don't want that. How do we avoid that? You know, it's also one of the reasons why we think it's so important to talk about things like house church. It's so important to find places where we can connect with those that can get to know us more deeply. That's why we're doing house church signups in two weeks. And, but here's the thing, we, we know this it's like, it's going to be different. Like when we do house church signups and we launch house churches in a couple weeks, it's going to feel different than it used to. There's no scenario 
where we're after 2020, there's no scenario where we just step back into what was and it feels exactly the same. It's just gonna feel different. And, and here's what I believe and what we wanna talk about this morning, man, in order for us to regain what we lost this year in terms of community, we have to understand what Christian community actually is. What is it? Why is it so important? And how do we begin to experience it? So we're just gonna unpack some of that this morning. We'll be unpacking that over the next couple of weeks. And this morning, I wanna start really simple. We're just gonna start, man, what is community? Like, how, how do you define that? We all know that we need it. We all feel it. But man, what is it? You know, the word community actually has its origins in Latin. And I know absolutely nothing about Latin. You know, my, my son's about to start a school tomorrow where he's gonna learn Latin. And I have no clue what he's gonna be learning. He's gonna be speaking a language that I can't understand. And so if you speak Latin and I'm wrong about what I'm about to say, you can come talk to me afterwards, but don't say it right now because it's gonna be really good, okay? So don't, don't tell me it's wrong. Uh, you know, Latin, it literally means, I found this on a really good Wikipedia article, Latin means common unity. I mean, it sounds pretty simple, right? It's community, it's common unity. It's a group of people who have unity around a commonality something that they share with one another, a shared belief, a shared purpose, a shared preference, a shared need, even a shared risk. It's unity around a commonality. Not only does that commonality draw them together, but it actually affects the identity of the participants in that community. I remember seeing this really plainly one time when I was in high school, I had a, a friend and uh, it was my junior and senior year, and you know, she was dating a college guy, so everybody thought, well, man, she's so cool. She's dating an older guy, that's amazing. Well, this guy that she was dating, he was like, he was a hardcore animal rights activist. And so she got really involved in kind of that scene, and she became vegan, didn't eat any animal products, didn't wear any leather, didn't wear anything that came from an animal. And she was very vocal about it. I had a PETA sticker on her car, wore PETA t-shirts. It was like her identity it became so much of who she was because she found this community that had a shared value. And I remember, I'll never forget, I went off to college and I came home a couple of years later and I was talking with a friend from high school and we were just catching up on where people were at and what people were doing. And I'm like, hey, what about so-and-so? Whatever happened with her? He's like, oh man, you wouldn't believe it. He's like, she, her boyfriend broke up with her. And the community that he had kind of brought her into didn't really want her around anymore. And so she left that. He was, it's so bizarre. Now she like eats spam and hot dogs and like hot dogs are her favorite meal. And she's all into eating meat and all this stuff. And it's like, whoa, what in the world happened? And you see the community that she was in. It didn't just have shared values and purpose. It's like, man, it started to shape her identity somewhat. And when she lost it, her identity felt shaky. This is the power of community. It shapes us greatly. You know, I wanna take some time and just look at kind of these two words, common unity. We're just gonna look at those one at a time and see what do the scriptures, what, do, what does Jesus himself have to say about these two words and why they matter in the lives of believers. And so I wanna start with the word unity. You know, you can read through the Old and the New Testament all through the Bible and find all kinds of things about unity. One of my favorite places is Psalm 133. Psalm 133, and we have a slide for that one, put it up on the screen here. Psalm 133, the psalmist says, behold, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. You know, I, I love this because it starts with this word behold. It's not a language that, a uh, word that I use very much. And, and I'm not like walking around and I see something like, oh, behold, you know, it's, it doesn't like something grab. But, but the, the idea of behold communicates something. To behold something, it, it means to stop and take notice of it. 
You stop and you take notice of it. It's like something that stands out, that seems unique, that grabs your attention. Charles Spurgeon writes about Psalm 133, and he's talking about this idea of of unity, of brotherly unity, as, as the psalmist says it. And he says, man, it is a wonder that is seldom seen. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, so when you see it, behold it. Behold it, look at it. It is well worthy of admiration. Pause and gaze upon it because it will charm you into imitation. Therefore, note it well. This is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, hey, look at this thing. When you see unity in the people of God, stop and look at it. It is precious. It is worthy to be admired. It is worthy of gazing upon so it might draw you in to participate in it. There's something deeply special about it. In fact, the psalmist will go on to say it's like oil poured on Aaron's head, which feels really weird to us, but the high priest in Israel, there was a special oil that was only to be used to anoint his head for his purposes in ministering to God before the people. And he goes, man, unity is as special as that unique oil that is only to be used on the high priest's head. It is special. It is unique. It is wonderful. Look at it. Behold it. True biblical unity. It it is hard to come by. But man, when you see it, you know it's special and we are to behold it and look upon it. Jesus would talk a lot about the importance of this. In fact, one of the things I love is Jesus prayed about this. You know, a, lot, a lot of some people don't know this, but we actually have, it's really cool, we, we have record of the words that Jesus actually prayed the night he would get arrested to be murdered. You know, the night that Jesus was arrested, uh, the day before he was crucified, he, he shared a meal with some of his closest friends. They went for a walk together and Jesus prayed with them. And one of Jesus' closest friends, this guy named John, actually took the time to like, listen to what Jesus prayed the night before he would go to his death. And he took note of all those things and he recorded it. And we see this in John chapter 17. And if you look in John 17, if you have one of our Bibles, you can turn to page 739. It'll be on the screen as well. But John chapter 17, starting in verse 20, Jesus is gonna start praying. At this point, he's already prayed. He's already prayed for himself and what's about to come upon him. He's prayed for his closest friends. And now he's gonna start praying for another group of people. Listen to who it is. Verse 20, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for my disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We live in the downstream of the ministry of the disciples. Here, Jesus, the night before he died, he's praying for us. Listen to his prayer. He says, I pray, verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Listen to this. So that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And Jesus, the night before he dies, he prays for us. And what was the thing just burning in his heart? The thing that was burning in his heart is that we would have unity that is only comparable to the mysterious unity of the Holy Trinity itself. He says, says, Father, let them love one another like we love each other. The Trinity, one God, three persons, so close. You can't just like, oh, it's such a closeness. He was, I want my people to have that kind of holy love for one another, to be united just like that. That's what he prayed for us. That's what he longed for us. But Jesus didn't just pray unity for the sake of unity. There was a purpose behind it, an aim behind it. 
In this prayer, we see, man, what was the aim of unity in Jesus' mind? He makes it really clear. He says that the world will know, one, he says that I've been sent by you. In other words, Jesus says, man, when my people are united in their love for one another, the world will know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one sent from God to declare the love of God to the world. So as we love one another, the world will know that Jesus is the Messiah, but not just that. He says so that the world will know that Jesus is Messiah, but also that the world will know that God loves us. When we live in that kind of unity, the world sees that love. They take note of it. They behold it. It shows them something that is otherworldly that seems so elusive, and yet we are empowered to live into it by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' aim of unity is that the world will know, but also, also just that we would love one another with his love. He describes this love really well in John chapter 15. In John 15, verse 13, he says this, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. It sounds like a lofty ideal until you understand that this is exactly what Jesus did and what he invites us to do for one another. He says, unity comes, it only comes when there's this willingness amongst God's people to give of themselves selflessly for the sake of those they are united with. I've seen this play out in house churches and in our church family in so many different ways. I remember last year just watching and seeing people in our church who were unable to pay rent and watching a house church come together and all give selflessly to make sure that they could cover the rent of the person that was in their house church. It's selfless love for one another. I remember several times last year, there were people that were struggling to get groceries either because they couldn't get out because they were sick or because their finances had been hit so hard and watching the community come together selflessly to provide for the needs of those who had not, that they could provide for them. It's like over and over again, we keep seeing that this is what it looks like to live in unity as followers of Jesus, that we will give selflessly for the sake of those that we are united with. You know, and, and truthfully, I think this is what we all long for. We all long for this kind of unity, a group of people that we can be around, that we know will be loved, we know will be cared for, come what may, but the fact that we all long for it makes us happy. We have to ask, why then is it so difficult? Why does it feel so elusive to us, this type of community? Why is it so hard to reach? Well, you know, when we said community is two words, it's the word unity, but it's also this word common, this common unity. And we have to ask the question of what is the commonality that pulls us together? You know, unity is only valuable if the commonality, the glue, has value in and of itself as well. If the commonality is for a wicked purpose, that community is destined to fail. And we all know that, right? It's destined to be corrupting to those who are a part of it. So what is the commonality that all of us as followers of Jesus should be pulling ourselves? What is the commonality that's meant to hold us together as we pursue the kind of community that Jesus held out? I believe Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4 kind of holds out the example for us of what the commonality is that we're striving for. Ephesians chapter 4, starting, we'll start in verse 3. I'll have it on the screen here as well. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in his day, and he says, man, make every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So 
One, he recognizes that, man, it's gonna take some hard work on our part, some effort on our part to maintain that unity. But it also requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And then he's gonna get into the commonality. Listen to verse four. He says, because there is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, what, what Paul is trying to hold out to us, he goes, guys, if you want to understand the commonality that makes community possible, he goes, it's understanding the teachings of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus. He goes, listen, Jesus is the one that had out the way to the Father. Jesus is the one that promised the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one that made you into a family when you used to be strangers. Jesus and all the things that he's held out for us has to be at the center. That has to be the commonality that holds believers together if we want to see the type of community that Jesus had for us. He has to be at the middle. He has to be at the center. The community that holds Christian together, the commonality that holds us together, it is a shared affection for Jesus. It is a shared submission to Jesus. It is a shared obedience to Jesus and all that he says and holds out for us. It's so important, guys, because in our culture, in the world in general, we see so many kind of watered-down versions of community. Places where people rally around, even Christians rally around lesser-than commonalities, lesser-than shared beliefs, lesser-than purposes, lesser-than preferences, wanting that to hold them together. I'll give you a few examples. And I just want to say, none of the things that I'll say here are inherently bad. None of these things are bad. They're just not meant to be at the center. We'll take an easy one that we all know tends to lead to a lot of divisiveness, which is politics. It's like, man, some, sometimes we want our political view to be the thing that holds us together, our political preference. You know, it's not that uncommon to hear about somebody leaving their church because the church did not align exactly with the political preferences that they had in their life but I wonder how often we see somebody changing or yielding their political preference for the sake of the church itself. We don't see that as often. And what that tells us is that, man, we've settled for a lesser than commonality at the middle. We've tried to rally around ourselves around the wrong thing. And Jesus goes, no, just let me be at the middle. You guys, there's so many ways that we do this. I know for me, when I was in college, it was like all of the communities and the, the friend groups that I wanted to be a part of, it was like, man, I wanted them to have the same shared music taste and preference. I wanted them to want to do the same outdoor adventures that I wanted to do because I thought, man, those are the things that are going to connect us and make us closer. And I'm just going to tell you, after years of trying to build friendships around those things, we had a lot of good times, but we did not have much lasting friendship or anything to build on. When we put something lesser at the center, it, it works for a little while until it doesn't. And Jesus goes, guys, it's, it's, gotta, be, it's gotta be me. It's gotta be the lordship of Jesus in our lives that we rally around. You see, when Jesus becomes Lord, when Jesus becomes at the center, all of the other things that we used to want to rally around, they just begin to pale in comparison. They, they just can't, they can't hold a match to the glorious splendor of the, the humble, like selfless, wonderful love of Jesus in the way that he wants to live that out in our life. 
That is what we are supposed to be rallying around. You know, we see this, we see this so clearly in the earliest community of Jesus followers. I love Acts chapter 4, verse 32. You know, it says, it says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This picture of one in heart and mind. What do you think it was that sat at the middle that allowed them? What was the commonality that allowed their unity to be such that it would be said they had one heart and one mind? Man, we know a few things about that community. We know a few things about the makeup of that earliest community of Jesus followers. I mean, it started with with Jesus' 12 disciples. Man, right there in that little ragtag band of 12 guys, you you had one guy that was a zealot, a Jewish zealot, and zealots... They actually, they literally trained and prepared because they wanted to have a military takeover or, or uh, overthrow of the Roman government in, in Israel. And so the, the Jewish zealots were just so passionately against Rome that they were ready to physically go to war to overthrow Rome for the sake of Rome, for the sake of Jerusalem and, and the Jews. And so there was a zealot right there in the midst of Jesus' followers. And then you also had this guy Matthew, who was a Jew that collected taxes for the Roman government. Man, can you imagine what their first conversation would have been like? <laughs> Wait, you do what? <laughs> like, the, the, the tax collector's scared for his life. The zealot's going to pull a knife and try to stab him. You know, like, how in the world does unity happen like that? Like, those, those two? You also had, uh, amongst that earliest community of Jesus followers, you had some of the wealthiest of people. You can read about this where they start selling land to give to the poor. They're they're landowners. But then you also had the poorest people in their society that were a part of that community. How in the world does that happen? Try to imagine that in our world today. Try to imagine walking into a church or walking into a, a, a house church and you see in that room, you notice that, man, there's someone who, who always votes Democrat and somebody who always votes Republican. You know, one, one guy who's like this hardcore Trump supporter and one guy who's like, was, was, I'm gonna go to my grave if I don't vote Democrat. And they're sitting there and they're having a conversation with one another civilly and lovingly and they're caring for one another. You would go, well, that's, behold, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> I, I've never seen that before. It, it grabs your attention. And then you start looking around the room and you see, you see like a, a millionaire CEO sitting next to someone who slept on the streets last night and they're laughing together and hugging and being affectionate and sharing a meal. And you go, whoa, that's, that's different. What to do with that? Behold, there's something unique happening in this. See, guys, this is what was happening in the earliest community of Jesus followers is because they understood their commonality was not their political leanings. They weren't drawing together on what to do about paying taxes to Rome. They weren't united over to handle Jew-Gentile relationships. What they were united around the name of Jesus and the radical love he had poured out in their hearts that they would go to any cost to share with those around them. This is what united them. Jesus at the center. He was their commonality. If we strive for true unity apart from the mutual and shared love of Jesus, it will always break down. It will always break down. We, do, we always end up diverting to lower 
kind of versions of unity to lower commonalities to tie us together and we end up being divided from those who don't share those lower commonalities. It has to be the love of Jesus. You know, as, as we kind of move into house church season, you know, there's all kinds of unknowns. They're like, man, what's that going to look like? Do, you know, what if I, do I want to sign up and go to a house with a bunch of people I've never met before? You know, that's going to feel kind of weird. How do I navigate that? Man, how are we going to navigate like Masks, no mask. I don't know if they're vaccinated. I don't know if they're not. There's all, there's all these questions we're going to have, guys. They're going to be there. And we've got to go, man, what, what is the commonality and what is that move, how does that move us to treat one another? How do we see each other in each other's hearts? How do we assume the best and seek to bless in the name of Jesus? You know, I remember there was a a couple that was part of our church, uh, you know, and for a long time, and they, they decided they were going to jump into a house church, and so they signed up. This was years ago. They signed up for a house church, and the first house church they went to, they kind of walked in, and they realized they looked around, and they're like, yeah, I, don't, I don't think we're really going to be friends with any of these people. Like, they're all so different than us. I mean, they're fine, but they're very different than us. There's not a whole lot of commonality that we have, you know, and, and so they actually decided they would look for another house church, so the husband and wife, and so they got online. They looked at our house church. They found another one. They went to that one. They kind of had the same experience, you know, like, I don't know. This is kind of different, and, and after trying that, they had this moment. I love the, the husband, he tells a story. He had this moment where he, he started to realize, he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if what if this is the whole point of Christian community? For me to learn how to love people that are different than me because of our shared love for Jesus. It's like this profound, like, aha moment. Like, suddenly it all made sense. So they just decided, they're like, you know what, we're just going to like, we're going to jump in and we're going to dig in with this last house church that we went to, even though it doesn't feel like our perfect group of friends, we are going to love them because they love Jesus and we love Jesus and we love one another. It was amazing what happened. They ended up finding what ended up being their closest group of friends as a part of Ethos as a family. These are the people, they did life with them for several years together and grew to love one another deeply, not based on lesser than commonalities, but based only upon the fact that they had a mutual affection for Jesus, submission to Jesus, and obedience to Jesus. And it changed them. It changed their understanding of community. You see, when we, when we jump into community with this kind of perspective, it changes how we deal with each other. Whenever there's a difference, we come to one another humbly because we understand that Jesus, our leader, was humble. When there's differences, we come to the scriptures and we try to talk with one another with grace and humility and respect to try to work it out. Whenever there is sin in Christian community, we don't hide from it, we don't pretend that it's okay. We come to the scriptures and we talk to one another about it. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'm concerned that this thing in your life is actually gonna eat away at your soul if you don't face it. Here's what the scriptures say. Here's what Jesus says. Man, we have hard conversations with one another because we see that, man, our affection for Jesus, our submission to Jesus, our obedience to Jesus is a stronger commonality than anything else. We don't just accept things as they are, but we constantly call one another on and spur one another on to more through Jesus. And when you live with Jesus at the center, whenever there's a need, man, we lean into the example of Jesus and we live selflessly and try to care for the needs of one another, even if it costs us. We lay down our lives for the sake of those that we are in community with. 
Guys, this is, this is the picture of Christ-centered community that the scriptures hold out for us. Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King, and Jesus' love as the uniting factor that draws us in with one another. Guys, this is, this is I, man, I don't know what your year was like last year. I don't know what it's been like this year. I don't know if you felt that need, that, that pull, that, man, I need community. It's not going to just happen. It takes work. Like, it takes a commitment to stepping into something new. It takes trying to love people the way Jesus loved us. And so, you know, in a couple of weeks, we do house church signups. Man, I want to encourage you, like, man, let's, do, let's just be all in with this together. Let's be all in with one another, with the love of Jesus right at the middle. You know, we live this out. We actually live this out every single week. I mean, every week we come into this place and we share a common unity with one another, our love for Jesus. That's why we gather in a bar in downtown Nashville and sing songs. I don't know if you've, you know, if, if, if you've been in church your whole life, news break for you, what we do is kind of weird to the rest of the culture. Like gathering together with a bunch of people and singing some songs out loud, like it's strange, but we do it because we have this shared affection for Jesus. So our worship is one of the ways we practice our common unity. Our, our devotion to the scriptures is one of the ways that every week we share our common unity. But perhaps the biggest thing that we do to really celebrate and look at our common unity is communion. I'm sure you can see the overlap of words there. That's no, no coincidence. When we take communion, guys, it is this reminder that we take the body of Jesus, that God took on flesh he laid it all down to show us what real love looks like. We take his body in the bread. We take his blood. That he did not just come and walk as a person amongst us. He gave his life and shed his blood to give us what we could not attain on our own, the forgiveness of sins and life from the dead. And every week we come around the bread. We come around the cup to remind ourselves that no matter what we see politically, no matter what we see in personal preferences and all these things, that we look at one another, we go, man, we share the love of Jesus. And because of that, we will be committed to one another, come what may. And so this morning as we take communion, man, we're just celebrating our common unity. We're celebrating that we don't have to be divided like the culture around us is divided that we really can, thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit, love one another in a way that beautifully testifies to the goodness of God and the glory of Jesus. So this morning, as we get ready to take communion, if, if you don't have communion, by the way, I'll give you a chance in just a second. It's, it's on the bars, on these tables, kind of around the room, um, and you can get up and grab that. But before we do that, I, I, wanna, I want us just to take a minute. You know, the reality is, is that when we come to communion, if, if we come to the body and blood of Jesus, but we know that we haven't really been living in full submission to him, full obedience to him, especially in regards to our relationships with one another, man, it matters. In fact, Jesus makes this statement at one point. He says, hey, whenever you come to give an offering, it's not the same as communion, but it's just, you're coming to him to offer something to God. He says, man, whenever you make an offering, if you know that you have something against somebody else, go deal with that first. Before, and then come and make your offering. And I, I just want to give you, a, I want to encourage you to take a moment, like a minute, two minutes. We're going to just reflect silently and ask the Lord, is there anyone, is there anyone in the community that I have this common unity with 
that I, that I need to reconcile with. Maybe it's somebody that I've judged wrongly. Maybe it's somebody that I'm holding a resentment towards. Somebody that I've got bitterness in my heart towards. And we're gonna ask the Lord just to reveal that. And then, and then you're gonna ask him, Lord, what do I do about that? And I'll just encourage us as we come together, let's not let the communion of the saints over the body and the blood of Jesus just be a, you know, a pretense. Let's be a community that acts in obedience to make sure that, man, there's no wedge that the enemy's gonna drive in here because we are quick to repent, quick to forgive, quick to let go of judgment. Okay, so I'm gonna have some, just some music turned on and we're gonna take one or two minutes. I just want you to ask the Lord, Lord, is there anyone, anyone in the community of Jesus followers in my life that I'm holding on to resentments, that I'm not forgiving, that I've judged. Just ask the Lord to highlight that. Let's just go ahead and turn on some music. You can close your eyes if you want to. Just be still for a minute. Lord, will you show us? Lord, we, we want the unity you have for us. And so we come right now, we just listen. If there's anyone, Lord, if there's any reconciling that needs to take place in our hearts towards brothers and sisters, would you show us now, Lord, we come to you. You are at the center. there's a name or a person that's coming to your mind, take note of it. You can write it down. Put it in your phone. Just keep listening. Lord, is there anyone? Now we're, gonna, we're just going to ask the Lord what we need to do about it. So Lord, we, we ask you, if you've revealed someone in our life that's a brother or sister in Christ, um, that we've been holding on to some kind of bitterness or resentment or judgment, Lord, as you show us, what, what do we do about that? Would you speak to us? What should we do, Lord.
as you listen, the Lord may lead you in different ways. You know, he, he may lead you that you need, to, you need to go call that person right now. And if that's, you know, when we get up to worship here in a minute, if that's what you need to do, you can go call that person. It may be a text message. You need to text them. Or maybe the person that you're with this morning, or maybe somebody that you know is here somewhere, go find them, talk to them. I just encourage you, whatever it is that the Lord puts on your heart to do, man, let's be a people that act in obedience. Take that step. We want Jesus as the commonality that is the glue in our unity. And so, Lord, you continue to lead us. <clears throat> lead us, Lord, in obedience to you. As we come now to communion, as we come to your body and your blood, Jesus, would you let it just knit our hearts together? Our shared devotion to you, our shared affection for you, our shared submission to you, and our shared obedience. <clears throat> would you, through your spirit, begin to just bond our hearts as we take communion with one another? We love you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.